Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. For those who remember George Hallis, we might think of him in his later later years as the aging but still cranky coach of the Chicago Bears. Welcome to When Football Was Football. I'm Josie Umba, and tonight we're going to go back and look at a couple of times when George Hallis, who was with the Bears forever, it seems, actually retired. He was stiff-jawed and tensed and focused. One wonders if Hallis ever smiled on the field. From all accounts, he did not. Football was his passion, and the urge to play pushed him into pro football in 1919 with the Hammond, Indiana Bobcats, after he had told his mother pretty confidently that he was through with football. This followed his breakthrough season with the Great Lakes Naval Training Center football team, which won the Rose Bowl in early 1919. With World War I and the flu epidemic at the time hitting the country in 1918, many college football teams either disbanded or played a reduced schedule. This left the military bases, which were teeming with servicemen who played in high school or college, to fill in the gaps and participate on the football landscape in the fall of 1918. Hallis had not played much football during his tenure at the University of Illinois before joining the Navy in January of 1918. He quickly established himself as a baseball star at the University of Illinois, but his gridiron exploits were limited by injuries. However, this proved beneficial for Hallis, who spent much of his downtime observing legendary coach Robert Zupke. Hallis was able to see the big picture behind the organization and function of a football team. In his autobiography, Hallis discussed Coach Zupke, stating, Zupke was a tremendous coach. He was a careful teacher. He knew how to get the best out of his young men. And he was an innovator. Following his departure from Illinois in early 1918, Hallis did play for the talented Great Lakes football team. Then, after his discharge from the service, joined those Hammond Bobcats pro football squad in 1919, while he was still actively pursuing a Major League Baseball career. But it was in early 1920 that Hallis received the phone call that changed both his life and the direction of professional football in this country. Hallis was asked to direct the athletic program and coach the football team for the A.E. Staley Company in Decatur, Illinois. He found the offer attractive enough and soon traveled down to Decatur from his Chicago home to build a football team. Over the next decade, Hallis oversaw the team's move to Chicago in 1921, watched as it changed from the Staley's to the Chicago Bears, and he won his first pro championship in 1921. Hallis welcomed the illustrious Red Grange to the NFL in 1925 and built a solid, reliable, winning football club over those years. After finishing 12, 1, and 3 in 1926, the Bears began a slow slide that culminated in a disappointing 4-9-2 mark in 1929, 
That was the first losing season in the combined history of the Staley's and Bears. With the Great Depression beginning to affect the entire country in 1930, Hallis began to question his role as player, coach, and owner of the Bears. His initial reaction was to retire as a player. Then he needed to do something about the co-coaching duties he actually shared with partner Dutch Sterneman. Hallis said, The time had come for Dutch and me to stop coaching or, more accurately, miss coaching. We had to put coaching under one mind. We decided to bring in someone who would pull the team together. This would be the first retirement of George Hallis as the Bears coach. Some may have been surprised when the Bears hired Ralph Jones to take over the team. Jones was coaching at nearby Lake Forest Academy, a high school north of Chicago, which looked to some as a very, very big jump for a prep coach. Allison Sterneman both knew that Jones actually carried with him a wealth of knowledge, as well as a ton of experience. Jones had been the freshman coach when Bears co-owners were at Illinois. He had also served as the head basketball coach at Illinois and Purdue, where he was also an assistant football coach. Jones was a feared adversary at Lake Forest Academy, however, where he compiled a lofty 82-8 record during his 10 years at the school. 82-8. Even Hallis admitted there would be some naysayers regarding the hiring of Coach Jones. He said, It astonished everyone the Bears should go to an academy for a coach. Ralph Jones was a sound strategist. He believed muscle, guts, and spirit were not enough. He believed it also took brains. To win games. So would the first retirement of Hellas as a coach result in more failure with a high school coach at the helm? Or could new coach Jones reverse the recent tailspin experienced by the Bears? Hellas noted that the only stipulation Jones requested before accepting the offer to coach the Bears was that both Hellas and Sturman stay far away from the football field and then concentrate on managing the organization. Then Hellas added, Jones said, I'll give you a championship in three years, and I believed him. So, with complete control of all football-related activities, Jones began to carve out a respectable squad in 1930 that reversed the 4-9-2 record of the previous season by finishing 9-4-1, good for third place in the National Football League. Ellis preferred the old T formation, and Jones maintained that offensive strategy and took it to new heights, actually. However, he also initiated some subtle changes, such as widening the distance between the offensive linemen and then taking advantage of the little-used man-in-motion opportunity, specifically using the Great Red Grange in the backfield. Hallis and admiration recalled, In time, Jones had so many plays the defense was totally confused. Thus was born the modern T formation with a man-in-motion. It broke the game wide open. Football became a game of brains. Red Grange added, playing football became a lot more fun. So as part of using their brains to play the game, Jones also encouraged the Bears players to evaluate their opponents for any insight into how they might initiate their next play. Ellis wrote, a linebacker about to blitz the quarterback might place his feet in a different position. A receiver might wipe his hands on his trousers, and a passer might look at the intended receiver as the team lined up. 
All of these traits were helping Coach Jones create a winning program. The experiment with hiring high school coach Jones seemed to be working, but would it continue? One big piece to help the T formation, and it was a really big piece, also arrived in the Bears camp in 1930 in the form of future Hall of Famer Bronco Nagurski. An All-American at both fullback and tackle at the University of Minnesota, Nagurski was a powerful presence on both sides of the line and certainly helped with the initial success enjoyed by Coach Jones. But in 1931, the Bears slipped just a notch to 8-5, which was still good for third place in the league. With just one season to make good on his promise to bring the Bears a championship within three seasons, Coach Jones was ready to push the team to the top of the standings. Although the team was losing money during the Depression, Hallis and Jones kept the core of the club together for what they thought would be a promising 1932 campaign. However, the team got off to a really ugly start with just an 0-1-3 record after four games. Since tie games still did not count in the official league standings, the Bears faced an intimidating uphill battle in order to battle for the title. After that rough start, the wins and the ties started piling up for the Bears as they managed to finish with an unusual 6-1-6 record. The Portsmouth Spartans concluded their schedule with a 6-1-4 mark, thus forcing a playoff for the title since both teams, without those ties included, ended up with an equal 857 winning percentage. Bad weather forced the championship game to be played indoors at Chicago Stadium where the Bears prevailed by the score of 9-0. Ralph Jones had delivered on his promise to bring the Bears a championship within three years, but then surprisingly resigned from his position before the 1933 season, forcing Hellas to find another head coach. Jones spent just three seasons as the head coach of the Chicago Bears, but his winning percentage of 706 remains the highest for any coach in the team's long history. Although buried with letters from coaches looking to succeed Jones, Hellas needed to look no further than his own mirror to identify the Bears' next coach. Being that it was the Depression, Hellas also figured out there would be a significant financial savings by not having to pay a coach in 1933. So he offered himself the job, and not surprisingly, he accepted Hallis proved to be quite adept at coaching, and the Bears repeated as NFL champions in 1933, and then again under Hallis in 1940, 1941, and 1946. While he was in the service during World War II, the team also captured the 1943 title. Hellas remained in the coaching role until after the 1955 season when the Bears finished 8-4, and in second place in the division. It was probably time for the 60-year-old Hallis to step away from the rigors of a head coaching position in the NFL and perhaps bring on some young, fresh blood to coach the Bears. Instead, Hallis turned the team over to 60-year-old Patty Driscoll, his old friend and teammate from both the Great Lakes and the Bears days. Hallis said, I handed the head coaching job to Patty Driscoll, my friend and colleague, for 40 years. I felt I owed him the satisfaction of being head coach before he ended his career. But I told Patty, privately, the job would be his for two years and then I would return. On February 2nd, 1956, Hallis made the change official by stating, Patty is a solid, dependable football man. I have great confidence in his ability to keep the Bears in the title running. 
I know of no one who has made a greater contribution to the game of football. Driscoll, a longtime assistant with the Bears, was pleased with the appointment, calling it the greatest assignment of his career. Driscoll proved to be up to the task by winning the division with a 9-2-1 record and then advancing to the 1956 title game against the New York Giants. Then, disaster struck as the Giants battered the Bears 47-7 after building up an insurmountable 34-7 halftime lead. The Giants wore gym shoes on the frozen Yankee Stadium field, which were reminiscent of the Giants' title game victory over the Bears in 1934 in the famous Sneakers game, where the Giants came from way behind to beat the Bears after the Giants started wearing gym shoes in the second half. Some familiar names were announcing the game nationwide on NBC that day. Chris Schenkel, Red Grange, and Chicago's own Jack Brickhouse. In 1957, the Bears under Patty Driscoll slumped to 5-7, and, and right on cue, Alice returned to coaching and remained there through the 1967 season. Alice did win another title in 1963, beating those same Giants. George Ellis finally retired on February 27, 1968 and walked away with a lifetime coaching record of 318, 148, and 31 over his incredible 39-year coaching career. His retirement in 1968 was still somewhat of a surprise, but Ellis explained his reasoning at the time by saying, I suppose I began to realize this in one of our final games last season when I started rushing after the referee who was pacing off a penalty and it suddenly dawned on me that I wasn't gaining on him. I began to wonder whether the officials were speeding up or if I was slowing down. So this time, Hellas would not return from retirement, but unlike the previous two settings, the Bears did not return quickly to the title game. In fact, it was not until 1985 that the Bears were able to win their next and last NFL championship. Thank you for joining us today for our look at the various retirements of Coach George Hellas of the Chicago Bears. As the NFL schedule begins in earnest shortly, our next episode on the Sports History Network will focus on several mini scandals that rocked the NFL without anyone else really taking any notice. Back in the time when football was football. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life anywhere. The Row One gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more and any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in the Row One shop, check out thousands of more unique items with retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts and long sleeve shirts, phone cases and mugs, blankets and pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one, that's R-O-double-U, number one, for access to the full Row One catalog for gallery prints and gift items. Plus, get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code 
capital S, capital H, capital N, 15. SHN 15. So visit row one at sportshistorynetwork.com slash row one now and be prepared to geek out at the vintage shop for sports history fans. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. We at the Sports History Network are so glad to introduce to you a new addition to our lineup. Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast is a weekly podcast that focuses on the history and memorabilia of North American football since its inception in 1869. It's hosted by Bob Swick, the publisher and editor of Gridiron Greats Magazine, and Joe Squire's a longtime contributor to that magazine. The podcast was launched in 2017 and has over 150 episodes that you can listen to now on a Sports History Network, as well as your favorite podcast provider. So join Bob and Joe as they go through football history, talking about the memorabilia and the great legendary players and games of the American Gridiron on the Gridiron Greats Magazine Podcast.